Section one of My First Summer in the Sierra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My First Summer in the Sierra by John Muir. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Dedication to the Sierra Club of California. Faithful Defender of the People's Playgrounds. Section 1. 1869. In the great central valley of California there are only two seasons, spring and summer. The spring begins with the first rainstorm, which usually falls in November. In a few months the wonderful flowery vegetation is in full bloom, and by the end of May it is dead and dry and crisp as if every plant had been roasted in an oven. Then the lolling, panting flocks and herds are driven to the high, cool, green pastures of the Sierra. I was longing for the mountains about this time, but money was scarce, and I couldn't see how a bread supply was to be kept up. While I was anxiously brooding on the bread problem, so troublesome to wanderers, and trying to believe that I might learn to live like the wild animals, gleaning nourishment here and there from seeds, berries, etc., sauntering and climbing in joyful independence of money or baggage, Mr. Delaney, a sheep-owner for whom I had worked a few weeks, called on me, and offered to engage me to go with his shepherd and flock to the headwaters of the Merced and Tuolumne rivers, the very region I had most in mind. I was in the mood to accept work of any kind that would take me into the mountains, whose treasures I had tasted last summer in the Yosemite region. The flock, he explained, would be moved gradually higher through the successive forest belts as the snow melted, stopping for a few weeks at the best places we came to. These, I thought, would be good centres of observation, from which I might be able to make many telling excursions within a radius of eight or ten miles of the camps, and learn something of the plants, animals, and rocks for he assured me that I should be left perfectly free to follow my studies. I judged, however, that I was in no way the right man for the place, and freely explained my shortcomings, confessing that I was wholly unacquainted with the topography of the upper mountains, the streams that would have to be crossed, and the wild sheep-eating animals, etc., in short, what with bears, coyotes, rivers, canyons, and thorny bewildering chaparral, I feared that half or more of his flock would be lost. Fortunately, these shortcomings seemed insignificant to Mr. Delaney. The main thing, he said, was to have a man about the camp who he could trust to see that the shepherd did his duty, and he assured me that the difficulties that seemed so formidable at a distance would vanish as we went on. Encouraging me further by saying that the shepherd would do all the herding, that I could study plants and rocks and scenery as much as I liked, and that he would himself accompany us to the first main camp, and make occasional visits to our higher ones to replenish our store of provisions to see how we prospered. Therefore I concluded to go, though still fearing, when I saw the silly sheep bouncing one by one through the narrow gate of the home corral to be counted, that of the two thousand and fifty many would never return. I was fortunate in getting a fine St. Bernard dog for a companion. His master, a hunter with whom I was slightly acquainted, 
came to me as soon as he heard that I was going to spend the summer in the Sierra, and begged me to take his favourite dog, Carlo, with me, for he feared that if he were compelled to stay all summer on the plains, the fierce heat might be the death of him. "'I think I can trust you to be kind to him,' he said, "'and I am sure he will be good to you. He knows all about the mountain animals, will guard the camp, assist in managing the sheep, and in every way be found able and faithful." Carlo knew we were talking about him, watched our faces, and listened so attentively that I fancied he understood us. Calling him by name, I asked him if he was willing to go with me. He looked me in the face with eyes expressing wonderful intelligence, then turned to his master, and after permission was given by the wave of the hand towards me, and a farewell patting caress, he quietly followed me as if he perfectly understood all that had been said, and had known me always. July 3, 1869. This morning provisions, camp-kettles, blankets, plant-press, etc., were packed on two horses. The flock headed for the tawny foothills, and away we sauntered in a cloud of dust. Mr. Delaney, bony and tall, with sharply hacked profile like Don Quixote, leading the pack-horses, Billy the proud shepherd, a Chinaman, a digger Indian to assist in driving for the first few days in the brushy foothills, and myself, with notebook tied to my belt. The home ranch from which we set out is on the south side of the Tuolumne River, near French Bar, where the foothills of metamorphic gold-bearing slates dip below the stratified deposits of the central valley. We had not gone for more than a while before some of the old leaders of the flock showed by the eager, inquiring way they ran and looked ahead that they were thinking of the high pastures they had enjoyed last summer. Soon the whole flock seemed to be hopefully excited, the mothers calling their lambs, the lambs replying in tones wonderfully human, their fondly quavering calls interrupted now and then by hastily snatched mouthfuls of withered grass. Amid all this seeming babel of bars as they streamed over the hills, every mother and child recognized each other's voice. In case a tired lamb, half asleep in the smothering dust, should fail to answer, its mother would come running back through the flock toward the spot whence its last response was heard, and refuse to be comforted until she found it, the one of a thousand, though to our eyes and ears all seemed alike. The flock travelled at the rate of about a mile an hour, outspread in the form of an irregular triangle, about a hundred yards wide at the base, and a hundred and fifty yards long, with a crooked, ever-changing point made up of the strongest foragers called the leaders, which, with the most active of those scattered along the ragged sides of the main body, hastily explored nooks in the rocks and bushes for grass and leaves. The lambs and feeble old mothers dawdling in the rear were called the tail-end. About noon the heat was hard to bear. The poor sheep panted pitifully, and tried to stop in the shade of every tree they came to, while we gazed with eager longing through the dim burning glare toward the snowy mountains and streams, though not one was in sight. The landscape is only wavering foothills roughened here and there with bushes and trees, and outcropping masses of slate. 
The trees, mostly the blue oak, Quercus douglasii, are about thirty to forty feet high, with pale blue-green leaves and white bark, sparsely planted on the thinnest soil or in crevices of rocks beyond the reach of grass-fires. Slates in many places rise abruptly through the tawny grass in sharp lichen-covered slabs like tombstones in deserted burying-grounds. With the exception of the oak and four or five species of manzanita and ceanothus, the vegetation of the foothills is mostly the same as that of the plains. I saw this region in the early spring, when it was a charming landscape garden, full of birds and bees and flowers. Now the scorching weather makes everything dreary. The ground is full of cracks, lizards glide about on the rocks, and ants in amazing numbers, whose tiny sparks of life only burn the brighter with the heat, fairly quiver with unquenchable energy as they run in long lines to fight and gather food. How it comes that they do not dry to a crisp in a few seconds' exposure to such sun-fire is marvellous. A few rattlesnakes lie coiled in out-of-the-way places, but are seldom seen. Magpies and crows, usually so noisy, are silent now, standing in mixed flocks on the ground beneath the best shade-trees, with bills wide open and wings drooped, too breathless to speak. The quails also are trying to keep in the shade about the few tepid alkaline water-holes. Cottontail rabbits are running from shade to shade among the ceanothus brush, and occasionally the long-eared hare is seen cantering gracefully across the wider openings. After a short noon rest in a grove, the poor dust-choked flock was again driven ahead over the brushy hills, but the dim roadway we had been following faded away just where it was most needed, compelling us to stop and look about us and get our bearings. The Chinamen seemed to think we were lost, and chattered in pidgin English concerning the abundance of liddy-stick chaparral, while the Indians silently scanned the billowy ridges and gulches for openings. Pushing through the thorny jungle we at length discovered a road tending towards Coulterville, which we followed until an hour before sunset, when we reached a dry ranch, and camped for the night. Camping in the foothills with a flock of sheep is simple and easy, but far from pleasant. The sheep were allowed to pick up what they could find in the neighbourhood until after sunset, watched by the shepherd, while the others gathered wood, made a fire, cooked, unpacked, and fed the horses, etc. About dusk the weary sheep were gathered on the highest open spot near camp, where they willingly bunched close together, and after each mother had found her lamb and suckled it, all lay down, and required no attention until morning. Supper was announced by the call, Grub! Each with a tin plate helped himself direct from the pots and pans, while chatting about such camp studies as sheep feed, mines, coyotes, bears, or adventures during the memorable gold days of pay-dirt. The Indian kept in the background, saying never a word as if he belonged to another species. The meal finished, the dogs were fed, the smokers smoked by the fire, and under the influence of fullness and tobacco, the calm that settled on their faces seemed almost divine, something like the mellow meditative glow portrayed on the countenance of saints. Then, suddenly, 
as if awakening from a dream, each with a sigh or a grunt, knocked the ashes out of his pipe, yawned, gazed at the fire a few moments, and said, "'Well, I believe I'll turn in,' and straightway vanished beneath his blankets. The fire smothered and flickered an hour or two longer. The stars shone brighter. Coons, coyotes, and owls stirred the silence here and there, while crickets and hylas made a cheerful, continuous music, so fitting and full that it seemed a part of the very body of the night. The only discordance came from a snoring sleeper, and the coughing sheep with dust in their throats. In the starlight the flock looked like a big grey blanket. June 4 The camp was astir at daybreak. Coffee, bacon, and beans formed breakfast, followed by quick dishwashing and packing. A general bleating began about sunrise. As soon as a mother ewe arose her lamb came bounding and bunting for its breakfast, and after the thousand youngsters had been suckled the flock began to nibble and spread. The restless weathers with ravenous appetites were the first to move, but dare not go far from the main body. Billy and the Indian and the Chinaman kept them headed along the weary road, and allowed them to pick up what little they could find on a breadth of about a quarter of a mile. But as several flocks had already gone ahead of us, scarce a leaf, green or dry, was left. Therefore the starving flock had to be hurried on over the bare hot hills to the nearest of the green pastures, about twenty or thirty miles from here. The pack-animals were led by Don Quixote, a heavy rifle over his shoulder, intended for bears and wolves. This day has been as hot and dusty as the first, leading over gently sloping brown hills with mostly the same vegetation, except for the strange-looking Sabine pine, Pinus sabiniana, which here forms small groves or is scattered among the blue oaks. The trunk divides at a height of fifteen or twenty feet into two or more stems, outleaning or nearly upright, with many straggling branches and long grey needles, casting but little shade. In general appearance this tree looks more like a palm than a pine. The cones are about six or seven inches long, about five in diameter, very heavy, and last long after they fall, so that the ground beneath the trees is covered with them. They make fine, resiny, light-giving campfires, next to the ears of Indian corn, the most beautiful fuel I've ever seen. The nuts, the Don tells me, are gathered in great quantities by the digger Indians for food. They are about as large and hard-shelled as hazelnuts. Food and fire fit for the gods from the same fruit. June 5 this morning, a few hours after setting out with the crawling sheep-cloud, we gained the summit of the first well-defined bench on the mountain flank at Pino Blanco. The Sabine pines interest me greatly. They are so airy and strangely palm-like I was eager to sketch them, and was in a fervour of excitement without accomplishing much. I managed to halt long enough, however, to make a tolerably fair sketch of Pino Blanco Peak from the southwest side, where there is a small field and vineyard irrigated by a stream that makes a pretty fall on its way down a gorge by the roadside. 
After gaining the open summit of this first bench, feeling the natural exhilaration due to the slight elevation of a thousand feet or so, and the hopes excited concerning the outlook to be obtained, a magnificent section of the Merced Valley at what is called Horseshoe Bend came full into sight. A glorious wilderness that seemed to be calling with a thousand songful voices. Bold, down-sweeping slopes, feathered with pines and clumps of manzanita, with sunny, open spaces between them, make up most of the foreground. The middle and background present fold beyond fold of finely modelled hills, and ridges rising into mountain-like masses in the distance, all covered with a shaggy growth of chaparral, mostly adenostoma, planted so marvellously close and even that it looks like soft, rich plush, without a single tree or bare spot. As far as the eye can reach it extends a heaving, swelling sea of green as regular and continuous as that produced by the heaths of Scotland. The sculpture of the landscape is as striking as its main lines in its lavish richness of detail. A grand congregation of massive heights, with the river shining between, each carved into smooth, graceful folds without leaving a single rocky angle exposed as if the delicate fluting and ridging fashioned out of metamorphic slates had been carefully sandpapered. The whole landscape showed design, like man's noblest sculptures. How wonderful the power of its beauty! Gazing awe-stricken, I might have left everything for it. Glad, endless work would be mine tracing the forces that had brought forth its features its rocks and plants and animals and glorious weather. Beauty beyond thought, everywhere, beneath, above, made and being made for ever. I gazed and gazed and longed and admired until the dusty sheeps and packs were far out of sight, made hurried notes and a sketch, though there was no need of either for the colours and lines and expression of this divine landscape countenance are so burned into mind and heart they surely can never grow dim. The evening of this charm day is cool, calm, cloudless, and full of a kind of lightning I have never seen before—white glowing cloud-shaped masses down among the trees and bushes like quick-throbbing fireflies in the Wisconsin meadows rather than the so-called wild fire. The spreading hairs of the horses' tails and sparks from our blankets show how highly charged the air is. June 6. We are now on what may be called the second bench or plateau of the range, after making many small ups and downs over belts of hill waves, with, of course, corresponding changes in the vegetation. In open spots many of the lowland compositae are still to be found, and some of the mariposa tulips and other conspicuous members of the lily family. But the characteristic blue oak of the foothills is left below, and its place is taken by a fine large species, Quercus californica, with deeply lobed deciduous leaves, picturesquely divided trunk, and broad, massy, finely lobed and mottled head. Here also, at a height of about twenty-five hundred feet, we come to the edge of the great coniferous forest, made up mostly of yellow pine, 
with just a few sugar-pines. We are now in the mountains, and they are in us, kindling enthusiasm, making every nerve quiver, filling every pore and cell of us. Our flesh-and-bone tabernacle seems transparent as glass to the beauty about us, as if truly an inseparable part of it, thrilling with the air and trees, streams and rocks, in the waves of the sun, a part of all nature, neither old nor young, sick nor well, but immortal. Just now I can hardly conceive of any bodily condition dependent on food or breath any more than the ground or the sky. How glorious a conversion, so complete and wholesome it is, scarcely memory enough of old bondage days left as a standpoint to view it from. In this newness of life we seem to have been so always. Through a meadow opening in the pine woods I see snowy peaks above the headwaters of the Merced above Yosemite. How near they seem, and how clear their outlines on the blue air, or rather in the blue air, for they seem to be saturated with it. How consuming strong the invitation they extend! Shall I be allowed to go to them? Night and day I'll pray that I may, but it seems too good to be true. Some one worthy will go, able for the godful work. Yet, as far as I can, I must drift about these love-monument mountains, glad to be a servant of servants in so holy a wilderness. I found a lovely lily, Callochortus albus, in a shady Adenostoma thicket near Colterville, in company with Adiantum chilensi. It is white with a faint purplish tinge inside at the base of the petals, a most impressive plant, pure as snow-crystal, one of the plant-saints that all must love, and be made so much the purer by it every time it is seen. It puts the roughest mountaineer on his good behaviour. With this plant the whole world would seem rich, though none other existed. It is not easy to keep on with the camp cloud while such plant people are standing preaching by the wayside. During the afternoon we passed a fine meadow bounded by stately pines, mostly the arrowy yellow pine, with here and there a noble sugar-pine, its feathery arms outspread above the spires of its companion species in marked contrast. A glorious tree, its cones fifteen to twenty inches long, swinging like tassels at the end of the branches, with superb ornamental effect. Saw some logs of this species at the Greeley Mill. They are round and regular, as if turned in a lathe, excepting the butt-cuts, which have a few buttressing projections. The fragrance of the sugary sap is delicious, and scents the mill and lumber-yard. How beautiful the ground beneath this pine, thickly strewn with slender needles and grand cones, and the pines of cone-scales, seed-wings and shells, around the instep of each tree where the squirrels have been feasting. They get the seeds by cutting off the scales at the base in regular order, following their spiral arrangement and the two seeds at the base of each scale, a hundred or two in a cone, must make a good meal. The yellow pine-cones, and those of most other species and genera, are held upside down on the ground by the Douglas squirrel, 
and turned around gradually until stripped, while he sits usually with his back to a tree, probably for safety. Strange to say, he never seems to get himself smeared with gum, not even his paws or whiskers, and how cleanly and beautiful in colour the cone-litter kitchen middens he makes. We are now approaching the region of clouds and cool streams. Magnificent white cumuli appeared about noon above the Yosemite region, floating fountains refreshing the glorious wilderness. Sky mountains, in whose pearly hills and dales the streams take their rise, blessing with cooling shadows and rains. No rock landscape is more varied in sculpture, none more delicately modelled than these landscapes of the sky. Domes and peaks, rising, swelling, white as finest marble, and firmly outlined, a most impressive manifestation of world-building. Every rain-cloud, however fleeting, leaves its mark, not only on trees and flowers, whose pulses are quickened, and on the replenished streams and lakes, but also on the rocks are its marks engraved, whether we can see them or not. I have been examining the curious and influential shrub Adenostoma fasciculata, first noticed about Horseshoe Bend. It is very abundant on the lower slope of the second plateau near Coulterville, forming a dense, almost impenetrable growth that looks dark in the distance. It belongs to the rose family, is about six or eight feet high, has small white flowers in racemes eight to twelve inches long, round needle-like leaves, and reddish bark that becomes shreddy when old. It grows on sun-beaten slopes, and like grass is often swept away by running fires, but is quickly renewed from the roots. Any trees that might have established themselves in its midst are at length killed by these fires, and this, no doubt, is the secret of the unbroken character of its broad belts. A few manzanitas, which also rise again from the root after consuming fires, make out to dwell with it, also a few bush compositae, baccarus and linoceris, and also some liliacaceous plants, mostly calochlorus and brodacea, with deep-set bulbs safe from fire. A multitude of birds and wee slinket cowering timorous beasties find good homes in its deepest thickets and the open bays and lanes that fringe the margins of its belts offer shelter and food to the deer when winter storms drive them down from their high mountain pasture. A most admirable plant! It is now in bloom, and I like to wear its pretty fragrant racemes in my buttonhole. Azalea occidentalis, another charming shrub, grows beside cool streams hereabouts, and much higher in the Yosemite area. We found it this evening, in bloom a few miles above Greeley's Mill, where we are camped for the night. It is closely related to the rhododendrons, is very showy and fragrant, and everybody must like it, not only for itself, but for the shady alders and willows, ferny meadows, and living water associated with it. Another conifer was met to-day, incense cedar, Libocedrus decorans a large tree with warm yellow-green foliage in flat plumes like those of the arbor vitae, bark cinnamon-coloured, and, as the boles of the old trees are without limbs, 
They make striking pillars in the woods, where the sun chances to shine on them. A worthy companion of the kingly sugar and yellow pines. I feel strangely attracted to this tree. The brown, close-grained wood, as well as the small, scale-like leaves, is fragrant, and the flat, overlapping plumes make fine beds, and must shed the rain well. It would be delightful to be storm-bound beneath one of these noble, hospitable, inviting old trees, its broad, sheltering arms bent down like a tent, incense rising from the fire made from its dry, fallen branches, and a hearty wind chanting overhead. But the weather is calm to-night, and our camp is only a sheep-camp. We are near the north fork of the Merced. The night wind is telling the wonders of the upper mountains, their snow-fountains and gardens, forests and groves. Even their topography is in its tones. And the stars, the everlasting sky-lilies, how bright they are now that we have climbed above the lowland dust! The horizon is bounded and adorned by a spiry wall of pines, every tree harmoniously related to every other. Definite symbols, divine hieroglyphics written with sunbeams. Would I could understand them! The stream flowing past the camp through ferns and lilies and alders makes sweet music to the ear, but the pines marshalled around the edge of the sky make a yet sweeter music to the eye divine beauty, all. Here I could stay tethered forever with just bread and water. Nor would I be lonely. Loved friends and neighbours, as love for everything increased, would seem all the nearer, however many the miles and mountains between us. End of section 1